Well, again, good morning. As uh, Mark said, my name is Adam Radcliffe. I have the, the privilege of serving as one of the pastors at Downtown Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. And more important than that, um, I'm the, the dad to Vivian and to Charles and Jude and the husband uh, to Natalie. This is my first time on Long Island uh, and therefore my first time at Grace Presbyterian Church. And um, just so you know, I am I, truly delighted um, to be with you guys uh, this morning. There are a uh, few things that I would rather be doing than um, opening God's word with God's people and pleading with him to be at work in our hearts through his word um, and producing in us worship. I mean, that is why we have gathered on the Lord's day, right? Uh, for God to be glorified by our being glad in him, in the gospel that gives us God, which is the greatest gift of the gospel. And so um, all that to say, um, please know that I'm delighted to be here with you this morning, and I'm grateful to your pastor, uh, Mark, for the opportunity to come. Um, I was told that I could pick anywhere in the Bible to preach from today, uh, which is a dangerous thing. But um, we are going to be in the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 12. So if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn there with me. If you don't have one with you, I was told that it would be up on the screen in just a moment. But um, this letter was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to Timothy, who was the pastor of the uh, church in Ephesus. Um, and Timothy was also a close uh, ministry partner with Paul um, and a protege. And so let me read our passage and then I'll pray for our time together. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here in person and those who are watching online this morning. Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross in our place. And we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Would you open our eyes to see what's really here, our hearts to embrace what is really here in this passage. Um, we want to see Jesus. We want to hear Jesus. So we pray that you would be at work in Christ's beautiful name we pray. Amen. Now, for some of us here, I know this isn't true of everyone um, at Grace Church, um, but for some of us, I think we've been in the church for a big part of our lives, uh, which means, uh, for a lot of us, we have heard the Bible preached, uh, we've heard the gospel proclaimed hundreds of times, 
Um, And so we are familiar with statements like the one that comes from Paul in this passage when he says there in verse 15 that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And and here's the danger that I I wanna help us to see. What tends to happen with such familiar truths like this one is that because we have heard them so often, they can really begin to lose their power and their wonder. They just start to fall on deaf ears, and we kind of become numb to it. Uh, For me, I I know that I'm guilty of it, and I'm guessing if you're being honest with yourself, you are as well. Uh, We can be quick to say when we hear something like that, like, I already know that preacher. Could you move on to something maybe more relevant or more practical for my life? And what ends up happening is that over time, we just begin to lose the wonder and the beauty and the -the off-the-charts nature of what God in Christ Jesus has done for us. And slowly but certainly, uh, if we're not careful, it'll stop having any practical effect on our lives. Our hearts will become cold toward, toward it. And we'll just wake up every day oblivious to the miracle, oblivious to the miracle that it is that any of us are saved. Or if I can be so blunt to put it this way, it'll just become boring It just become boring, mundane, and we'll just go through the motions. Uh, Let me give a real-world example um, that each of us experience every day. It happened uh, this morning. Just think about the sunrise. I bet you guys have some incredible sunrises here, but think about the sunrise. We have um, seen it hundreds of times in our lives, and for many of us, uh, we no longer stop to consider what's actually taking place. Think about it the wonder that you and I are on a planet that is suspended in a universe that nobody has been able to find the end of. We are spinning on an axis and we are held in orbit by a star that is something like 109 times larger in diameter than our tiny little planet called Earth. And it is so massive that you could fit 1.3 million Earths inside of it. Just try to wrap your mind around how massive the sun is. And day after day, without fail, at just the right time, we spin into view of the sun's light and heat as it rises on the horizon. It is so consistent that we set our watch to it. Like It is an amazing thing. And yet, because we see it every day, we rarely give more than a moment's thought to it. And so when we hear words like Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is way more amazing than the sunrise, we often don't slow down long enough to consider what it actually means. Like how his, cha- how his coming changes everything. Like when Jesus Christ came into the world, it changed everything. So that if you are a Christian this morning, like you are a miracle. A few years back, I read a book uh, about a guy named John Newton. Maybe that's a name that some of you guys are familiar with. But Newton uh, lived in England back in the 1700s. Uh, He's most famous uh, for his hymn, Amazing Grace, uh, which is arguably the most recognizable song in the entire English language. Um, Newton was a pastor for over 40 years, um, and it's probably the greatest pastoral letter writer of all time. Like the guy knew how to write a personal handwritten uh, letter to people. But Newton is also remembered 
for the role that he played in the abolition of the British slave trade. Uh, He was the spiritual mentor uh, to the much younger William Wilberforce, who was a member of parliament and who vehemently, vehemently opposed the institution of slavery. By all accounts, John Newton led a remarkable life to the glory of God and the good of the people around him. But before all of that, like before Amazing Grace, before becoming a pastor, before writing thousands of Christ-exalting hymns and letters, it would not be an overstatement to say that John Newton was one of the vilest of sinners. He was so far from God that it seemed hopeless. Like, do you have someone in your life who you think, Man, there's no possible way that person could ever become a Christian? No possible way. Maybe that was you this morning. Um, that was John Newton. Like, he was the least likely convert to Christianity. If you can think up a sin, it's likely that he committed it or gave some serious thought to committing it. There was even a period in his life when he was the captain of a slave ship. Um, and he recounts committing atrocious um, injustices against blacks. Uh, but as God would have it, the former slave trader, think about this, the former slave trader would play a crucial role in setting the slaves free. Don't you just love how God works? When Newton was was 22 years old, he almost drowned aboard a merchant ship in a storm at sea. And that near-death experience proved to be a a watershed moment for him because it, it shook him from his slumber, his drunken stupor, to his desperate need of Christ because he knew, he knew in that moment that if he were to perish in that sea that night, that he would spend an eternity in hell separated from Christ. As I was reading that book, one thing I was struck by um, were Newton's last recorded words. A pastor who was much younger than Newton was, um, whom Newton had helped mentor, uh, went to visit him on his deathbed and um, he had brought his journal along with him. Um, By this point, Newton was well into his 80s. Uh, He was confined to a room. He was bedridden. He had lost much of his memory. His health was quickly deteriorating. He'd be dead in a matter of days. But this is what the young pastor penned in his journal that day from the lips of the dying Newton. He said this, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Let those words wash over you for a moment. Here was a man who had walked with God for 50 years, but he never forgot what God had done for him. He never let the truth of the gospel become mundane or ordinary. Though he had forgotten most everything else, he never forgot or he never failed to exalt in the most important, glorious truth in all the world that he was a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Like if you remember nothing else of what I say today, I pray that you would remember that. Because here's what I want us to see, and here's the connection to our passage this morning. Newton didn't come up with that line on his own. It comes from the Apostle Paul. There was another older pastor who was at the end of his life who said something similar to a younger pastor whom he had mentored in the faith. The Apostle Paul says to the young Ephesian church pastor, Timothy, in verse 15, 
This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul is writing these words toward the very end of his life. He would soon be killed by the Roman emperor Nero because of his faith. And there is absolutely no doubt that he's looking back over his life, knowing he's not going to be around much longer. And what's one of the things that he wants Timothy to know is that he is the greatest of sinners. He's the foremost. And Christ is the greatest of saviors. Paul never stopped being amazed at the grace of God that overflowed for him. He never got over the nearly unbelievable truth that Jesus, that God came into the world to save sinners. And neither did did John Newton, and I pray that neither would we here this morning. There's so much that we could unpack here, but all I want us to do is ask three questions of this text. And the first is, what did it cost? What did it cost Jesus to come into the world? Second, why did he come? And third, how do we keep this good news from becoming ordinary and mundane and therefore life-changing for us and for the people that God has called us to? So first question, what did it cost Jesus to come into the world? Obviously, there's a lot that we could say here. We could say here. Because the grace of God that was poured out for the salvation of sinners did not come cheap. But consider this with me. Paul says there in verse 15 that it was Jesus who came into the world. Now, for us who've been in the church, been around the church, um, I think it's easy for us to just fly right past that because we say Jesus' name all the time, don't we? But there is so much weight attached to it. The name Jesus literally means Yahweh, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Which means that God himself, not someone else, sent some proxy, but Yahweh became a man. So just think about this. The infinite, eternal God the one who created all things, who sustains all things, the second person of the Trinity who is loved eternally by the Father, clothed with unspeakable beauty and glory, who's been worshiped by angels from all eternity, this God willingly laid aside his rights as God, entered into history by taking on human flesh. He befriended sinners He lived a life of perfect obedience to his father. He was accused of being a devil. He was betrayed by a close friend. He was mocked. He was scorned. He was condemned as a criminal. He was sentenced to death. He was beaten, spit upon, nailed naked to a sinner's cross. Like This is God. He was dehydrated, breathless, agonizing, suffocating, all while absorbing the full wrath of God for the sins of his people. He bled and he died. And then the everlasting God who dwells in unapproachable light was placed in a borrowed grave and engulfed in darkness. But the story doesn't stop there, does it? 
Because three days later, he was raised to life, triumphing over sin and death and the devil and securing salvation for his people. And he ascended into heaven and he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he has been given the name above every other name. His name is Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, Paul says. Christ Jesus came into the world. And the cost was greater than you and I will ever be able to comprehend because it is incalculable. This is why John Newton and this is why the Apostle Paul and those of us who love him can say that he is a great Savior. Friends, never lose the wonder of the incarnation of the Son of God dying in the place of people like us. Never lose the wonder of that. Second, why did Jesus come? We've already touched on this, but Paul gives the answer here. He says that the reason he came and died is to save sinners like him. Unless that word be stripped of any real significance for us. Paul says here, if you want to know just how great a savior Jesus is and how utterly desperate and undeserving you are, let my life serve as an example for you that if he can reach down into the darkness that I was living in and save someone like me, he can save absolutely anyone, including you sitting here this morning and those here in the Hamptons and on Long Island who don't yet know him. Look again at what he says there in verse 13. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saint is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. <laughs> this is so good. Paul is holding himself up here as the poster child for the least likely convert to Christianity. The least likely convert. And if you've been in the church, you know his story, right? It's bad. In the book of Acts chapter 7, he says, it says there that Paul was at the stoning of Stephen. Remember this? Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And it says that Paul approved of his execution. He cast his vote and he said, like, that man deserves to die because of his faith in Jesus. Paul approved of that. And then in Acts chapter 8, it says that there arose a great persecution against the church. And who was leading the charge? Right? You guessed it, it's the Apostle Paul. It says that he was ravaging the church entering house after house, dragging off men and women, putting them in prison. Like he wanted nothing more than to destroy the church and to destroy Christians. So this is not a man who is looking for Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus. Paul is not a person who's exploring the claims of Christianity. That's not who he is. This is a man hating Jesus and hating everyone who follows Jesus. But we all know the story, don't we? Paul on the Damascus road, on his way to persecute Christians in Syria. And then all of a sudden, 
out of nowhere, the risen Jesus knocks him off his horse and saves him. Here's the thing, Paul, for the rest of his life, he never got over it. Paul, the great persecutor of the church, became Paul, the great apostle to the church. All for the purpose, as he says here, of magnifying the greatness of the Savior and saving unworthy sinners, of which he was the foremost. Is it not amazing how God works? So back to the question, why did Jesus come? Jesus came into the world to save rebels. He came to save blasphemers and persecutors, those who hate Christ and who hate his church. Jesus came to save slave ship captains like Newton and liars and cheaters and complainers, adulterers, agnostics, prostitutes, racists. He came to save the greedy and the self-righteous and the self-absorbed and the self-important. Like in other words, he came to save people like you and me. The grace of God overflowed for undeserving wretches like us. I've heard it said by several different people that the gospel, the good news, says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe but you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. You and I may not have the same testimony as a Paul or a John Newton, but we would make a very big mistake to think that our situation was any less desperate or dire than theirs or anyone else's in the world. Like them, we too should be able to say that I am a great sinner and that Jesus is a great savior. Because the reality is, We are more sinful than we ever dared believe. Do you believe that? But you are also more loved than you ever dared hope. That it is sheer grace that any of us are saved. It is sheer grace and mercy that any of us are saved. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, if you need an example of that, then just look at my life. If he saved me, he can save anyone. So let me ask the question to you. Is that you this morning? Are you far from God? Are you running in the opposite direction? Have you done things that you think that nobody could ever love you or forgive you? And certainly not God who sees you perfectly. The good news, the gospel that is on offer to you this morning and to all of us is that you have not strayed so far that his arm is too short to save you. If you're a great sinner, which is really all of us, he is an even greater savior. So come to Christ. Come to Christ. Which leads to the last thing that I want to say, a point of application. How do we, how do we get this gospel truth? How do we get it lodged deep into our hearts so it doesn't become boring and mundane, but actually thrilling and life-giving for us and for those God has put around us? This is where we started, right? We hear, we see something um, so often that we begin to lose the wonder of it. And when we lose our wonder, it no longer has the power to change us. I think the issue 
um, for every single one of us is that we suffer from gospel amnesia. Just gospel amnesia. We are prone to forgetfulness, prone to wander, as the song says. I've heard someone say before that a Christian is someone who needs to be saved every single day. I think that's more or less true. Don't misunderstand that. Our salvation is secure. He who began a good work in us, what? Will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. But we are so quick to forget. So quick to lose the wonder of the grace that has overflowed for you and for me individually. Quick to forget that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So what do we do about it? For starters, we do what we just did. We slow down and we take time to remember. We take time to consider what it actually cost Jesus for God himself to save us. We take time to remember how sinful we really are and how undeserving we are of his grace and how great his love for us actually is. And we gather for worship every Sunday to sing, to remind one another, to hear God's word proclaimed, to pray with one another and for one another, to fellowship with other believers. We wake up in the morning and we open our Bibles and we pray for God to warm our cold hearts and to open our blind eyes and our deaf ears, not just intellectually, just to have more knowledge but to love and to adore him with all of our hearts for who he is and for what he's done for us. And maybe like John Newton and like the Apostle Paul, when we come to the end of our life, we can say with all of our hearts that yes, I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. And that we would be able to praise God with Paul when he said at the end of our passage in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the good news. Father, how quick we are to forget how good it really is. Help us not lose the wonder of it. Father, I, I pray for those right now here in person who, or those who are watching online who don't yet know you. Father, I pray by your spirit that you would save them. I pray that you would open their eyes to see their sin for what it really is and that they would see the Savior for who he really is and they would place their entire trust in him. God, would you work that miracle today? And for those here um, Grace Presbyterian Church, who do know you, Father, I pray that daily you would remind them of how good the gospel really is. Oh God, how we need it, how we need you. Spirit, continue to be at work in our hearts. And Father, we pray for many more people to come to know you here in the Hamptons. Would you use this church, these people, to bring that about, Father. May the gospel be proclaimed. May many come to know Christ. Pray that for the Hamptons. Pray that for Long Island, all of New York. In the beautiful name of Christ, we pray. Amen.